welcome to Guideposts in Motion. My name is Julie Myers-Wood, and I'm the CEO of Guidepost Solutions. While our podcast normally highlights insights from risk, compliance, and security professionals, today, in honor of Black History Month, we are focusing on the Black family, which is the theme of Black History Month this year. And we're going to have a candid conversation about representation, identity, and diversity. I'm excited to introduce my colleague, Asha Muldrow. She's a Senior Managing Director and Deputy General Counsel at Guidepost, and she's here to share her family story with us. I'm very proud that I was a big part of recruiting Asha. Um, she's a terrific addition to the Guidepost team and a very experienced lawyer and prosecutor. She's a former Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Central District of California, where she led over 100 investigations. She was also a partner at Will Lincoln and practiced law at Latham and Watkins. At Guidepost, Asha directs an array of compliance, monitoring, and investigative matters for corporations and individuals. She leads the Guidepost team, assisting the University of Michigan with implementing remediation efforts in the aftermath of sexual harassment charges. She's also leading the resident engagement team for the federal monitorship of the New York City Housing Authority, also known as NYCHA. This engagement is near and dear to Asha since she grew up in NYCHA housing. Asha was also a leader on the General Motors monitorship, where she led the compliance portion of that monitorship. Asha is a proud graduate of Yale University and Columbia Law School. In her spare time, which is not too much, <laughs> she's a proud mother of a very talented daughter, and she also serves on the board of directors of the Columbia Law School Association. I know that Asha makes her family really proud, and we are so proud that she's a part of the Guidepost family and a friend to all of us. Asha, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Thanks, Julie, for having me here, and thank you also for your leadership at Guidepost and for your commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Today for Black History Month, I share my family's story for a number of reasons. First, you'll probably realize that in many ways our families are more alike than they are different. Second, to raise awareness by sharing my own lived experience of pervasive racism that relentlessly tries to stifle Black excellence. And third, as a call to all of you for allyship, that you will teach your children and great-grandchildren to be like a girl I knew in my ninth grade history class, an ally who spoke up for me when I had no voice. Please, Zasha, tell, tell us more about that. Well, I remember it was 1989 at a very elite private school in the Bronx, and I had a teacher who was new from Texas. I was new to the school, and I was the only black girl in the entire grade of over 100 students at this elite prep school. Before I got to the school, I didn't even realize there were that many white people in New York City. I had never seen them before in one place. White people didn't live near me in Harlem or in the Bronx. Well, one day during class, I shot my hand up with enthusiasm and my teacher, she said, does anybody know the answer? Her question was dripping with a twang of her Southern accent. 
she tucked her blonde bob hair behind her ear and I thought she looked right at me, but it was like she looked past me, like I was invisible. I held my hand up so long it grew tired and I switched to hold up my left hand. No one else in the room had raised their hand. The teacher continued her lecture and then asked the same question again. Does anybody know the answer? Finally, a girl said, Asha has had her hand up this whole time. The teacher looked at her and said, I know, but we're talking about the industrial revolution right now. When we get to slavery, I'll be sure to call on her. The girl's jaw fell visibly open. I put my hand down. I don't remember that student's name who spoke up for me. I remember that she was Jewish. I remember that she had long, thick, brown, wavy hair. And I remember that she was an ally. I remember that moment and what it felt like to be reduced, dismissed, made invisible. More than 30 years later, I still remember what it felt like to be told that my only contribution to history was the sweat of free labor from the back of my ancestors. Well, two weeks later, we had midterms and I was really excited about the exam because I've always loved history. I knew the material inside and out, and I knew I rocked my essay answer. But when Miss, oh, I won't say her name, but when the teacher handed me back my exam paper, it had a C on top and no other writing anywhere that I could find. So I waited till after class and then I found my voice. I asked her why she gave me a C. She snatched the paper out of my hand, flipped to page six of 10, and then pointed to a scribble she had in front of a paragraph. She said, you see this transition sentence right here? Well, it made the whole thing really confusing. I didn't say anything. I was silent, but this time I would not be silenced. This time I knew who she was and what she was trying to do. I took the essay to the Dean of Students and told him what happened. I told him about the Industrial Revolution comment and then about the midterm. He read my paper and he said, not only is this the best essay I've ever read by a ninth grader, it's one of the best exams by any student ever and clearly deserved an A. So from that moment on, I had to turn all of my history work into the Dean directly to get graded. It was clear that I was going to get a raw deal from my teacher, no matter what. But then, I can't remember if it was a few weeks or months, I was walking down the school, like the side of the school towards the school bus, and a blue pickup truck rolled past me, and I heard something about N-word trash. And a bag of half-eaten food and garbage was hurled at me from the truck window. And that was the final straw. I decided I had to leave the school in search of a better opportunity. Asha, I can't believe what you had to go through at, at such a young age and to have to deal with those emotions and, and to have the courage to stand up for yourself, um, to take a stance um, and then ultimately to move on. Well, Julie, I come from a long line of people who have kept moving on and kept striving <laughs> for a better opportunity despite that their brilliance was attempted to be snuffed out. 
you know, they've moved on, if not just for themselves, but for the next generation, for me. But, you know, my story, the Black experience, and, and I don't speak for all Black people, just myself, but my story is not extraordinary at all. Quite the contrary. My story is exceedingly ordinary in the Black American experience. You know, I'm the great, great granddaughter of Ned and Ellen Gilliam, who were born in the late 1870s. They were the children of enslaved people. They were, quote, farm laborers, which meant sharecroppers, which really meant a continuation of slavery because they were always indebted to the owners. So they were sharecroppers from Virginia, my grandma's grandparents, and my grandma kept their pictures in a small metal frame on the shelf in the living room in her NYCHA apartment. Their faces were right there, an ever-present reminder of how recent our enslaved past was. Ned and Ellen had several children. Among them were Eston Gilliam, born in 1901, my great-grandfather, and he made his way to the steel mills of Pittsburgh. He met my great-grandmother, Blanche Gilliam, in church. She had migrated there from Georgia, also the daughter of sharecroppers and the granddaughter of enslaved people. She is my great-grandmother. She was a short, slim lady with a big heart, and they married in 1921 and they moved to New York City with two children, James and my grandmother, Evelyn. My grandma Evelyn was born in 1925. And all of us called Blanche Gilliam Nanny. Nanny worked as a domestic in New York City. She would leave her Harlem tenement apartment really, really early in the morning and go up to the Grand Concourse of the Bronx. There, the domestics would line up on the street and white women would hang out of their windows and point and call down for the gal they wanted. Usually the bigger and brawnier women would get chosen first. Eston and his brothers were window washers, back-breaking work, and he couldn't get into the union, so he would scrounge up work on his own. But the days that it rained or snowed in New York City, that meant no work. On my dad's side, his mom's family is from a Caribbean island in the British West Indies, Nevis. Jane Ferguson's family owned a pharmacy on the island. It's still there. She took a boat through Ellis Island to get to New York City in 1917. She often counted how they would put the blacks on the bottom of the boat and the white people were on top and would spit down on them relentlessly. It took a week to get to New York by boat. And the West Indian enclave in New York City at the time, ironically, was around where Trump Towers stand now. There she met Joseph Hanley, my great-grandfather. And even though he was also from Nevis, they first met in New York City. Joseph had worked to build the Panama Canal, but he complained that the whites were paid in gold and the blacks were paid in silver. Joseph was a member of the Universal Negro Improvement League, UNIA and a devout follower of Marcus Garvey. In Nevis, you had to pay to attend schools. So when my grandma Jane got to America, she would often say she didn't understand how there were so many free schools and dumb people. She was adamant about the power of an education. 
when they moved to Connecticut, my grandfather worked at Yale University as a cook in a residential dining hall. So you can imagine the entire family pride when I enrolled at Yale as a student. And my grandmother had two sisters, Auntie Pearl and Auntie Mill. Auntie Mill had a voice that I remember being barely above a raspy whisper. When she was a young woman, a white police officer dragged her to the roof of a Harlem building and raped her. She screamed so loud and so long that her voice went hoarse and never recovered. My grandfathers, they were both soldiers in World War II. Eddie Simmons, his mom, Susie Hill, was from North Carolina, and on some censuses, the family was described as Negro, on others, mulatto. Back then, they didn't ask what you were. The census taker just put down what they thought fit. Light brown woman with blue eyes, Grandma Susie married William Simmons when she was 18, and he was many years her senior. William was a train porter and, and died at the age of 40 from a heart attack when my grandfather was just six months old. And then my other grandfather, Alfonso Muldrow, my dad's dad, was from a Seminole tribe in Florida. He said they were the, quote, unconquered Seminole Indians that were not part of the trail of tears that got sent to Oklahoma. He told stories that he heard from his uncles about fighting with Pancho Villa in Mexico. Now, my grandfather, Alfonso Muldrow, M-U-L-D-R-O, no W, is the only one without a W at the end. When he entered the service, they weren't going to ask a man of color how to spell his name. They just wrote it down however they saw fit. So our family line lost the W. But it still gives me pride when someone accidentally adds the W back on. Al Muldrow made his way to New York City. He was a talent artist and he worked as a photographer and ran in the artist circuits in Harlem. My grandmother Elaine had begged to live had begged to leave Connecticut and she moved back to New York City to live near her father and attended secretarial school. One of her early jobs was at an African council. She worked to put together an event for a Nigerian delegation and arranged for First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt to attend. The delegation presented Eleanor Roosevelt with a hand-carved beautiful African elephant stool. And they also presented my grandmother with a twin stool to show her uh, their appreciation for all of her hard work. That stool uh, still sits in my living room. But the rest they say is history. Apparently, one of the uh, members of the African delegation had a crush on my grandmother and asked her to marry him, but she declined, which was a good thing because my grandpa Al had come to the African delegation to learn more about history, and he met my grandmother, and she accepted his invitation. So um, enter my dad into the equation. Unfortunately for my grandma and dad, Grandpa Al was a bit of a rolling stone, though. So he ended up in Detroit, where he worked as a graphic artist drawing car concepts long before computer modeling. 
Uh, but again, imagine the family's pride when I ended up working on the federal monitor team for General Motors all these years later. And my uh, grandmother, she did work as a court stenographer and worked for the grand jury and then a black judge in the Bronx and introduced me to the first time to actually seeing a courthouse and meeting black lawyers and judges. I wonder if that's where you got your love of the law, Asha. I, I could only imagine how proud uh, your grandmother uh, must must have been when you went to law school and for your family to see you have such huge successes in this area. Yeah, absolutely. My, I ended up being the pride of both of my grandmother's eyes. Uh, so let me tell you more about uh, my the other grandmother, Grandma Evelyn. She met my grandpa, Eddie, at a dance. My grandma was 15 and Eddie was 16 and my grandmother loved to dance. She was famous for her Lindy Hop on the dance floor and they courted for 10 months. Their dates were mostly going to the movies and getting a Frank and a Coke after he won her heart. Uh, he gave her chocolate Hershey's bars after every date. And my grandmother loved chocolate so he knew how to how to win her over. After they got married, her dad got him into the window washing business too. Um, and despite being in love and five kids, due to the welfare rules at the time, when they said, you know, you can't have a man at the house, sadly, Grandpa Eddie left because um, they just couldn't make ends meet on the window washer's salary and feed five kids. But he still stayed close and connected to the family. Grandma Evelyn worked for the Board of Education as a payroll clerk when her youngest, my mom, was old enough to be left at home alone. But she was a city worker, a civil servant, as are many of the residents in NYCHA housing. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, my grandmother Elaine, she always worked as a office secretary. And she tells a story about when she wanted to take the day off to go attend the March on Washington. And her boss said no. So she said she quit because she was going anyway. And she was out there in the crowds that day, uh, that famous day on when Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Fortunately, her boss did offer her her job back uh, when she got back because she just couldn't find anyone else. But I, I know I got my hard work ethic uh, from the generations passing it down. Not only a hard work ethic, but obviously some real brilliance <laughs> that was passed down uh, from your family. And it's uh, it's clear, Asha, that your family history um, has had a strong influence on who you are today and how you built your background um, and started um, you know, persisting no matter what, going to Yale, Columbia Law School, becoming an attorney and prosecutor, um, and now working on really important engagements that affect, affect people's livelihoods, um, such as the matter that we're handling for the University of Michigan, and of course, um, the NYCHA matter for the New York City Housing Authority. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your background and your family in our next podcast as we continue to explore and celebrate Black History Month. Thank you, Julie. I'm really looking forward to telling you more about my parents and our experiences in NYCHA housing and telling you about my own daughter who is on her own path to success. 
She certainly is. She is she is one uh, one amazing uh, uh, young lady. Um, so I know everyone will be interested to hear about her. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in today. Please tune in again for another episode of Guidepost in Motion, where we're, we're going to have a chance to continue our series on the Black family, a candid conversation with Asha about representation, identity, and diversity.